0: The views of Earth are very, very incredible. Earth looks extremely bright. The surface of the Earth looks extremely bright. really surprised me how bright it looks.
1: The Earth from space.
0: And then by contrast, space looks incredibly black. And that might sound strange, but it's a dense matte black and like any other black I've ever seen. And so there's an amazing contrast there. And then separating the two is this um, very, very thin band of the atmosphere. And again, that was one of the surprising things to me, as soon as we started doing these high altitude flights, was how thin the atmosphere looked, shockingly thin. And then you, you think that, well, that atmosphere, that very, very thin band of the atmosphere, is what's keeping everything alive on this planet. And so it's a very, very impactful sight. And you can see so much of the curvature of the Earth, you get a sense of its scale. And it's not very big. And now you're looking at this small, beautiful planet protected by a very thin membrane of atmosphere. And you're looking into space and there's nothing else there, visible. It emphasizes how far the Earth is from anywhere else, even in the solar system, let alone you know the galaxy, the universe.
1: It's a view we've all seen through photos. But one day, that could change. This time on Future Lab, the new space race. How countries and corporations are setting the scene for a bold new frontier of space exploration. And how this time, it won't just be men who get to walk on the moon.
2: We kind of have a new space race going on now, really. I mean, look at all the new commercial companies going on. So there is a new space race, but this time it's a little less politically charged. The next wave of human spaceflight seeks to go beyond low Earth orbit, to
3: the moon and to mars i think right now we are just watching that inflection point
2: yeah it's really not far away now and we're all getting really excited about it i'm lucy johnston and this is future lab
1: the podcast brought to you by randox and the goodwood festival of speed
4: FutureLab is brought to you by Randox. The future of preventative healthcare is here, thanks to the screenings made possible by Randox Health. In previous episodes, we introduced the Randox Biochip technology, a small 9x9mm ceramic microchip that can scan for multiple disease markers with just a single sample. The Biochip screens for a range of diseases that we've covered, from cancer to thyroid disease and even diseases we know less about, like long COVID. It can even test for recurring conditions. One in two women will experience at least one urinary tract infection in their lifetime. Recently, Randox has rolled out a new biochip test that detects 21 causes of urinary tract infections and 8 antibiotic resistance markers from just a simple urine sample. UTIs can also afflict men especially those with enlarged prostates. Symptoms range from burning during urination, increased frequency of urination, blood in the urine, abdominal discomfort and more. Although UTIs can be swiftly treated with antibiotics, antibiotic resistance has become an ever-increasing problem, with up to 31% of UTI samples being resistant to trimethoprim, the primary drug used to treat UTIs it's crucial for doctors to be able to prescribe the right medicine which requires knowing which infection is present in an individual and its likelihood of antibiotic resistance. Randox got to work on a UTI biochip test not just to drive antibiotic resistant treatments down but to deliver more precise diagnoses to patients giving them a better chance at clearing up their infections fast. We'll learn more about the UTI screen in a little while But for now, back to the Future Lab podcast.
2: I've always been interested in space. I can't for the life of me remember where it came from. Nobody in my family seems to know. But I think I was about four or five years old when I said that I wanted to be an astronaut. And ever since then, that was my dream. And I never faltered from that.
1: This is Sean Cleaver.
2: I really loved looking at planets in my telescope. So I have a four and a half inch reflecting telescope. And even with that, you can see some amazing detail on the planet. So you can see like the bands of colour on Jupiter. You can see the great red spot and you can see the moons of Jupiter as well. She's currently at Airbus Defence and Space who make rovers,
1: spacecraft and satellites.
2: And as soon as I started working there, then I was like, OK, this is it. I'm in the space industry. This is pretty cool stuff. And this is where I'll stay. And of course, I've been with them ever since. Okay, I'm not an astronaut, but I'm working pretty close to it. I just need to go into space now.
1: (laughs) Sean currently works on NASA's Artemis
2: programme, a programme trying to do something
1: we haven't done in 50 years.
2: So the Artemis programme is a series of missions, a series of rockets, essentially going back to the moon.
1: In July 1969, when humans first set foot on the moon, it inspired a generation. Step Just look what we could achieve. That's one small step for man. But since 1972,
2: we've never tried to go back. Till now. So a lot of people ask me why we're bothering to go back to the moon. We've been to the moon. We've done it. Box ticked. Let's move on. But actually, it's a little bit different this time. We're going with a bit more forward thinking in mind, maybe. We're kind of using the moon as a stepping stone to exploring things like Mars, further away planetary bodies. So this time with our Artemis program, we're going to start to try to build up some infrastructure on the moon. So we're going to build up an orbiting space station around the moon called the Gateway. um, And that will be sort of a base for astronauts to go down onto the lunar surface and to come back up. And then in the future, it could also be used as a physical stepping stone to go on towards Mars. And the reason why this is so important is because there's a lot of technology that we need to develop and we need to test before we're ready to go to somewhere like Mars. So if we can establish a nice, sustainable human presence on the Moon, if we can start to, you know, maybe even use the Moon's resources to help us survive there, then we can use all of what we've learned on the Moon, we can use that on Mars as well, which will really help us to sort of push the boundaries as to human spaceflight explorations.
1: This time, we're going with long-term plans the Moon is the first step on a journey to establish a human presence on other planets.
2: With the Apollo program in the 60s and 70s, it was very much, we're going because we want to go. We're here on the Moon, we're collecting some moon rocks, we're doing a few experiments, but then we're coming back, you know, chapter closed. This time round, it's very much about going there to learn, to develop, to build up some more experience with a view to going onwards to Mars.
1: The spacecraft is called Orion, which will be composed of different sections one which can hold crew and another for propulsion called the European Service Module. This is the part the European team is providing where Sean works as the industrial manager.
2: So Airbus Defence and Space in Bremen, in Germany, is the prime contractor for the Orion European Service Module. And our customer is the European Space Agency. Our spacecraft, the European Service Module, is actually really critical in getting us to the moon because it's actually the bit that sits just behind the sort of conical crew module. And it's the bit that actually pushes the spacecraft, pushes the astronauts towards the moon. So that means it's got the propulsion system on it. It's got these big engines that actually provides the power to get us to the moon. And the propulsion system is really challenging. We need a lot of energy to get us all the way. We can't easily fix things like that. So we have to make sure that every tiny bit is perfect that nothing is leaking everything is sealed perfectly and we also need to make sure that we've got a redundant system so a backup system for every different component on our spacecraft we've got the safety of astronauts in our hands so that's probably the hardest thing for us is to make sure that everything is so so perfect not just good enough it has to be perfect and it has to be ultra safe to take these people safely to the moon and of course back again
1: If you know your Greek gods, you'll know Apollo and Artemis are twins. It's fitting when NASA shoots for the moon, the missions are named after archers. But the Artemis missions are going to have a key difference to her brother's mission that came before.
2: The important thing is that Artemis is a female character. And that really represents the whole sort of aspect of diversity this time that we have with the Artemis missions. The Apollo missions just sent white men to the moon and this time now that we're going back to the moon again in 2022 and beyond we're now starting to bring a bit more diversity to that so we'll be sending the first woman to the moon certainly for the first time which is going to be really exciting and I believe that it will be a woman who touches down on the lunar surface before anybody else this time and it will hopefully help to inspire the next generation of, of particularly young girls into thinking that a career in engineering or science is something that they could do. Space is really international, and for me, that's what the Artemis program is all about. It's, it's sending humankind to the moon again, not just Americans or Europeans or whatever.
1: The first mission, Artemis One, won't have any crew.
2: So, Artemis One should be launching this year, 2022, in the summertime, hopefully, if all goes to plan. And that first mission is uncrewed, yes. It's a test flight. So, all that will be on board is um, a couple of radiation dummies. So, not astronauts, but these sort of little dummy astronauts that will be doing some measurements of the radiation environment. And then, of course, throughout the whole spacecraft, we've got all sorts of sensors and, and systems to test what's going on and to make sure that everything performs correctly. I believe it's actually going further away behind the moon than we've ever been before with Apollo. And then, of course, the the capsule will return back to Earth and then we'll get a whole load of new data from that alone. So, yeah, very much a test flight. And then the next
1: mission will be ready for astronauts.
2: So, they won't land on the moon with Artemis 2. They will just orbit the moon, again, collect more data, check everything out, come back to Earth, and then Artemis 3 will be the one where we land on the moon. And that should hopefully be launching in 2025. That's the target for Artemis 3. And that will be really super exciting. I can't wait for that moment.
1: And this will hopefully lead the way for longer stays on the moon and eventually trips to Mars. But long term space visits are a challenge.
2: So I think for these lunar missions, potentially the hardest thing for the human body is to deal with the radiation environment. So as soon as you leave sort of low Earth orbit, all of a sudden you're outside of the Earth's magnetosphere, which is protecting us to some extent from radiation in space but obviously when you go towards the moon that's becomes a lot harder you're you're more exposed and i know that with the orion spacecraft we've actually designed a part of the spacecraft that has extra shielding for the astronauts so just in case there is a radiation event so if there's a solar flare or some solar activity that increases the amount of radiation in the environment the astronauts can take cover in this part of the spacecraft
1: plus you have to think about food and oxygen This is easier for shorter missions, but you can only take so much with you.
2: If we're thinking about going on to Mars in the future, then we really need to start thinking about how we can potentially grow our own food, produce our own food, keep our food in a good enough condition to last as long as we need it to if we were to go to Mars and back. So I'm sure that that will be a focus for the Artemis programme as well.
1: And once we solve these problems, there are all sorts of things to think about if we're to
2: establish long-term colonies in space. Are we going to be sending people for years at a time? Or perhaps even indefinitely? I mean, you see it in the Martian. we'd have to build little infrastructure, like physical little houses or habitats for people to live in and to grow plants in. And also we'll have to have infrastructure to help us extract materials, perhaps from either the lunar surface or Mars in the future. Self-sufficiency is really The goal, I think.
1: So, over 50 years from the last time we set foot on the moon, we'll be back.
2: I do look at the moon a bit differently now. There are moments, I don't know, sometimes I'm out for a walk or or a run and I look up at the moon and I'm sort of inspired in a way because I'm like, we're going there, that's what I'm doing, that's what I'm working for. And it's a nice reminder, actually, after a tough day, to look up at the moon and think we're going there soon. And everything that I'm doing is leading towards that. It's about developing ourselves as a human race. It's developing our capabilities, our technology, the way that we engineer things. You know, we are human beings. We're curious. We are explorers. We always have been. And for me, something like going to the moon or going to Mars is just an extension of that. It's a natural progression for us as humans. But it also comes with so many advantages in terms of helping our understanding. We will understand more about what we're capable of, what we can do in terms of technology, but we will also hopefully understand more about where we came from as a, as a species, as a, you know, where the Earth came from even. If we learn more about other planetary bodies, then it teaches us more about ourselves.
1: And while Sean has found her perfect career in the space industry, she still hopes she'll get there herself one day.
2: I really hope that in my lifetime, space tourism becomes affordable for the average person, you know, a bit like commercial air travel, purely because I just want to go into space myself, really. <laughs> I've spent all these years having this ambition of, you know, being an astronaut and wanting to go up there, and I would love to do it. If there was the opportunity to go to a space hotel or even you know, spend time on the moon, I would. Totally. I'd sell my house and go. I really would. (laughs) That'd be the best way to finish off a career in the space industry, wouldn't it? If you could just go and retire on the moon.
4: (laughs) Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Randox has developed a biochip that targets 21 bacterial and fungal pathogens and 8 antibiotic resistance markers associated with urinary tract infections. UTIs affect nearly half the population of women at some point in their lives and, although less common in men, the incidence of UTIs increases substantially with age and for those with coexisting illnesses. Risk factors for UTI include pregnancy, blockages within the urinary tract such as kidney stones, and incomplete emptying of the bladder. These infections are often caused by E. coli bacteria in the bladder or kidneys, but other microorganisms may be responsible for infection as well. The UTI biochip helps pinpoint which bacteria is causing symptoms by generating an accurate infection profile more quickly than current methods offer. If you're someone who has concerns with ongoing or recurrent UTIs, even with antibiotic treatment, Randox can help. With the UTI biochip test, same-day results are possible, leading to more efficient diagnosis and treatment. To learn more about booking a Randox health test, please visit www.randoxhealth.com.
1: While retirement on the Moon might be a little way away, nipping to space for a quick holiday is, perhaps, just around the corner.
0: Space is not actually very far away. 50 miles is uh, the accepted boundary of space.
1: This is David Mackay, Virgin Galactic's chief pilot.
0: It really began at a very early age. I was uh, brought up in a small fishing village on the east coast of uh, North Scotland. That whole area of Northern Scotland there was used as a low-flying training area for the military. Aircraft like uh, the, the Buccaneer, which was based at aria Lossiemouth at the time, would fly over my home village at very low altitude, at very high speed, flying down the valley into the heart of Northern Scotland there to, uh, to practise, to exercise. And so on a daily basis, I would see these very exciting aircraft making a lot of noise, manoeuvring hard at low level. And so I thought it looked absolutely fantastic and that that was something that I wanted to do from a very early age.
1: David had spent 30 years as a pilot flying all over the world. In 2009, a new company was set up and he wanted to fly a little higher.
0: I happened to be in the right place at the right time and got invited to be Virgin Galactic's test pilot.
1: Now, David would be flying people to space.
0: Virgin Galactic is offering flights to space, suborbital flights to space to people, but also payloads, or a mixture of the two, people and payloads, so we can fly experiments into space.
1: Suborbital means you fly up and then down in an arc, rather than going into orbit around the planet.
0: So it's easier to go straight up and down rather than to go around the planet. To go around the planet, you've got to go extremely fast, 17,500 miles per hour. So it takes a lot of energy to go that fast. And then when you want to get back down to Earth, you've got to lose all that energy. So that means that you've got to get rid of a lot of speed. You've got to do that typically in the atmosphere by slowing down in the atmosphere. And that creates a lot of drag, which also creates a lot of heat, which has to be got rid of summer. So there are significant issues associated with going to orbital. It's much simpler to go straight up and down. So that's what we're doing.
1: So how do these space trips work? Well, to tell us, we're also joined by Beth Moses.
3: I am the chief astronaut instructor, which means I train everyone that flies behind the pilots. I grew up watching, you know, the space program on television and there was nothing more exciting and there still isn't in my book. <laughs>
1: Beth's role is to ride in the spaceships as they travel to space and advise the customers how to get the best out of their experience.
3: The first time I joked that, gosh, my job is to train people for the cabin and the only person I've ever trained is myself, and gosh, I was a really bad student. (laughs) But now, fortunately, I've uh, flown once, trained myself, tested the cabin, learned how to improve it for others, and then trained three others to fly with me in the cabin on our last flight. And now of course I'll expand that to everyone who flies with us in the future. We would start by having a day of training at the spaceport where you fly from and you would do things like, um, we would issue your, your equipment, make sure that you understand exactly what your body will go through in the flight. And then the next day you would come back and train in the cabin. And also take uh, an aerobatic flight above Spaceport America so that you could feel the elevated and reduced G on your body. And then the third day would be rehearsals and final fit checks. And then you'd board on flight morning to fly with us.
0: (laughs) We have a mothership and we have a spaceship. And the spaceship is mounted underneath the mothership. The mothership is almost... (laughs) A conventional four engined aircraft. I say almost because it's pretty unusual. It's got twin fuselages.
1: Imagine a plane wing with three fuselages on it. The one in the middle is a separate spaceship with all the people in it, which detaches from the mothership.
0: And they take off together. We call that the mated pair. And then we fly this basically a big uh, circle climbing up to our launch altitude, which is around about 45,000 feet.
1: Then, the classic countdown.
0: Nine. Ten eight, seconds and five seconds. Three, two, one, release. One. Zero. At the point of release, a spaceship um, falls away from the mothership. It feels like going off the top of a roller coaster because there's this lightness in your stomach. But once we're clear of the mothership, then we light the rocket motor. So we accelerate away, and then within about eight seconds or so, we go supersonic, and then we pitch it up into the vertical... And at that point, we are around about 150,000 feet. We're doing three times the speed of sound straight up. And that's sufficient energy to coast all the way up into space.
3: Turn the vehicle upside down so that all the windows face down toward the Earth. You can float up out of your seat, which will then have you look down toward the Earth. My personal recommendation is to go ahead and unclick your buckle Win. The pilot gives you permission. Dave will only do so if uh, he's comfortable with the vehicle. You know, all being well, which it should be, and it has been every time we've flown, Dave will say, welcome to weightlessness. You're cleared to unstrap. The movies tend to get it wrong just because, you know, your arms don't suddenly float up. (laughs) Um, Everyone that finds themselves weightless, for example, on a parabolic aircraft, just breaks into a huge grin. It is ironically one of the most natural states your body can find itself in. It just feels natural, even though of course we've all evolved and, and grown up in gravity, right? So how come it feels so natural? I don't know. But it feels incredibly natural. So everyone loves it. You just smile, laugh. I think the one surprise that people find is that you can get going really fast unexpectedly. You know, you, you still have mass. Your body still has mass. And so if you push off of something. When you go to stop yourself, you're stopping your whole body mass with probably your arms or your legs, hopefully not the top of your head. (laughs) So I think people find that they move around more quickly to begin with than they would have anticipated.
0: That's the highlight of the experience, but it's not over yet by any means. So as we come back down, you get this kind of earth rush, you know, so you're looking and you see the earth rushing up towards you. So you go from this silence and you start to hear this noise of the, the upper atmosphere starting to hit the underside of the vehicle. And that builds to a crescendo, which is like a waterfall hitting the underside of the vehicle. It's actually louder than the rocket motor on re-entry. And now we're a glider and we've got about 50 minutes or so of gliding back down to a runway landing. And as it comes in to land, it just looks like a conventional airplane landing on the runway. The whole thing is about an hour 45 from takeoff to landing.
3: So the aim is to fly 400 flights per year per spaceport and have multiple spaceports.
1: So rather than needing to make the cut as an astronaut, now to reach space, you simply need the cash.
3: Well, gosh, we are opening space to all. So, you know, we have a really, really diverse, delightful customer base. Uh, We have already sold hundreds, nearly a thousand tickets. And so we have some sense of that sort of early customer base. And they cross every decade of life. And they are very diverse in nationality. I mean, it's over 60, maybe by now over 70 countries.
1: And already the tickets are going to some big names, including Tom Hanks and Angelina Jolie. David has even given a tour to Han Solo himself.
0: I got this uh, message saying that uh, Harrison Ford is arriving and you're looking after him. He was really impressed by the reality, you know, the stone-cold reality of this. This is not a movie set, you know, this is for real. For a while, I got the nickname uh, Chewie because I was sitting next to him in a spaceship.
1: (laughs) Getting to space is difficult and requires a lot of energy. Will this be possible to do sustainably?
0: We are doing all we can to, you know, limit uh, any impacts. You know, there's a huge amount of work going on to you know, re- reduce the amount of fuel that we carry. One of the advantages of the air launching is that we only have to burn our rocket for 60 seconds to get to space. So that helps. I truly believe that this experience will be so impactful to the people in the cabin that they will return to Earth with a renewed impression of the fragility of the planet, of the importance of looking after our spaceship Earth, because really it's the only one we've got for the foreseeable future.
1: But space travel is not without its risks. In 2014, a pilot lost his life during a test flight, and an explosion killed three people in 2007 during a test at partner company Scaled Composites.
0: Safety always comes first. So everything we do, we do very carefully. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons that uh, it's uh, taken as long as it's taken is we want to do things uh, very, very carefully. And uh, so there's an enormous uh, amount of uh, checks and balances that that goes on, a great deal of uh, meetings before, you know, changes are made and before we commit to a test flight. Huge amount of preparation.
1: Now that this new space race has commercial companies like Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin and SpaceX competing with governments, things are expected to move much faster.
3: The programs that are being done now and over the last few decades are, in my opinion, even more fundamentally amazing and astonishing and miraculous than the Apollo program was because today's programs are cooperative amongst many nations. They sort of have to be, right? I don't think any one nation can afford. And also, I don't want to sound too kumbaya or philosophical, but, you know, honestly, if we could just, like, lock all the squabbling world leaders into a spacecraft and have them hold hands and look at Earth, maybe they'd realize, eh, squabbles aren't maybe exactly the best use of our time
2: (laughs) you can't ignore all the stuff that's going on in this sort of commercial space industry that is really exciting stuff going on and it is definitely putting pressure on the sort of more old fashioned industries, so the space agencies, and maybe even more old fashioned or more well established companies, such as, you know, the one I work for, we've been around years, but now we're really feeling the pressure of these up and coming new companies. And I think it's good though, it's really good that we've got this sort of competition, this healthy competition, because it makes us think about our own processes. Okay, what's that company doing so that they can deliver that in that time period, what can we do similar? It's challenging us, it's pushing us to be better.
1: And while actually going to space won't be on the cards for me just yet, as Sean reminds us, space is ours, whether we're there or not.
2: Now, meteor showers come round You know, there's a couple each year that are really spectacular. And I would really recommend finding out when the next meteor shower is, whether it's a good one or not. You know, you can always find that information on the internet. And then going to the most dark place that you can find, safely, of course. (laughs) And then take a sun lounger or something you could lie on and just sit back and just watch the sky. And you will be amazed. It won't just be the shooting stars that you see, but you'll also see... Probably tens, hundreds of satellites going over as well. The sky is very sort of dynamic when you look up at the stars, the stuff moving, the shooting stars, the satellites, and and obviously the stars themselves will move across the sky over the course of the night. You don't need a telescope, certainly not a fancy telescope, to do basic astronomy. You just need to enjoy the night sky. Thank you very much to Sean Cleaver
1: from Airbus Defence and Space and the Artemis programme and to Beth Moses and David Mackay from Virgin Galactic This has been the last episode of this series of Future Lab. I hope you've enjoyed it and if you have, please do share, rate and review so other people can discover it too And if you're hungry for more don't forget the FutureLab live exhibition will be at the Goodwood Festival of Speed from the 23rd to the 26th of June this year Tickets are available online, and I hope to see you there. This podcast was brought to you by Randox and the Goodwood Festival of Speed. I'm Lucy Johnston, and thank you for listening.